Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with Paola Antonelli, and our mission here at Design Emergency is to explore how design is being used to deliver positive change. And we're thrilled that in this episode, we'll hear from the Indian artist, activist, and social designer, Aki Tami, who's doing exactly that by creating opportunities for healing and learning for women, girls, queer and trans people in vulnerable communities in Mumbai. Aki, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you so much, Alice. This is such an honor to be here and I'm always great, grateful, super grateful for all the wonderful spaces that you have brought me to. Thank you. Oh, well, it's our honor um, to have the chance to listen to you and hear about your work on Design Emergency. So, Aki is a Janjati, or Indigenous artist, who was born in the Himalayas. She now lives and works in Mumbai, where she's designed and delivered urgently needed resources for the city's most fragile communities, particularly in Dharavi, one of the world's biggest and most densely populated slums. Among Aki's projects there are Sister Library, a feminist library, learning and healing space, Bombay Underground, a collective of artists and designers who design zines and fly posters and run South Asia's first zine fest, and the Dharavi Art Room, which provides art, craft and design classes and workshops for women and girls in Dharavi. These projects are mostly self-funded and run collaboratively, which creates constant challenges for Aki and her colleagues at a time of radical change, both in India and Dharavi. So Aki, you work across many disciplines, but your principal focus is on developing social exchanges and safe spaces as means of healing. How did you come to focus on this? It came from a personal need to be with a community of people who would also understand what it means to live and resist from the margins. Um, because I became a mi migrant to the mainland of India at a very young age. And it meant that I had to teach myself a new language, a new way of living, a very different patriarchal culture, a very sexist and a misogynist one at that, especially because I'm an indigenous child. I was a child, I was 15 when I moved to the mainland. So it was a bit of a struggle. And, um, and so I think I just gravitated towards a community that may not have had the exact same experience, but knew what it felt like to uh, live a life of resistance. And, uh, and then art and making together in community just became sort of a medicine for me that uh, made me feel whole and gave me a will, I think, to live and bring about change in our everyday life and hope for a nicer, happier future, without which I wouldn't be able to envision a future at all. So in a way, when I started collaboratively practicing with people, it was a way for me also to be able to live so it it kind of like is both way that that way like they help me survive and that way i'm able to use uh my skills now in in order to bring the skills to the many many children that i work with and the women who also now are experiencing a whole different life and they are creating too 
So let's talk about specifically how you're doing this, how you're giving back to the communities um, that help to heal you. And if we talk first of all about Sister Library, which is a wonderful example of your practice, it's the first travelling community-owned and community-run feminist library in South Asia. So can you describe why and how you founded it and what sort of services it's providing for the community now? Like when I started it, I wasn't really thinking about it. But now after so many years, I really started reflecting on why the library is so different. And I think it is also the design component of how the libraries are designed. And we live in a caste society, which means that we have been assigned certain roles that we are to play. And because I'm indigenous, I'm outside of this hierarchy at all. But anyway, spaces of learning and higher education and spaces where libraries are, are very sanctified spaces, almost holy, with like high walls and ceilings and gated. And it does hold a lot of knowledge, which is meant to be circulated for people to use so that, you know, we can live a better life, but it's not that way at all. There are many restrictions to accessing it. And I guess it was from that. And also like how the way we are to conduct ourselves inside of a library and how learning happens within a library in a very solitary way where you sit with your book and you're not supposed to uh, talk like you're supposed to speak in whispers and things like that are demanded and i wanted a space of learning which would also be fun and which would not have like very stark white walls which could be intimidating for a lot of people who come from the social realities that i come from and so maybe I wanted to like flip that image and then make a library which was mobile and uh, which celebrated works of women. It came about with me reading women exclusively for a period of a year. And during that time, I was so moved and uh, <laughs> like the writing just like gave me so much life and power. And I was sharing it with a lot of friends. And I was already maintaining a small diary of the books that they were borrowing from me. And uh, I felt like it was time that I could carry these books to many, many people and different places in India as well. So the first year when I started traveling with it, I got um, an emerging artist prize, which was um, the sum would let me do whatever I would want to do, like buy equipment or rent a studio. But I asked them if it was all right if I traveled with the library across India. And then they were like, yeah, it's your prize. You do what you want to do with it. And so I then started thinking of the cities that I wanted to take the books to and uh, started curating the collection according to the cities that I went to and how the city has interacted with me while I was there, because I felt like that would be a good reading for the city. And so... Um, the first place I think I went to was Delhi, which is a kind of a difficult city. It has been for me. So the kind of books that I took were again about women, safety, public spaces, but also about indigenous women specifically. And that's how we started traveling. And we have pretty much now traveled to all the bigger cities in India. We have made a trip to the northeast of India as well, uh, which is the ind indigenous territory. And we have traveled to some smaller towns as well. And also outside of India too, we've come to London, we've gone to Auckland, and uh, we've done Basel, we've done Bangladesh. So it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and 
What services does the library offer? Obviously the books, but you also have a huge learning and, and workshop programme. So the library obviously is a boring library. It's open for people to come and read. But as a part of the library, we also do various programming. So every month we have this thing called the Feminist Movie Night, where we watch a film made by a woman. We talk about the film and then like it is women from all walks of life, but also men and like children. Everyone is welcome to come and watch the film. And then we have a fellowship program. It's called Working with Savitri Mai, which is like, it is named after Savitri Mai, who is this great foremother who paved the path for us to walk. She opened the first school for girls in South Asia. But for the Working with Savitri Mai fellowship, we support girls from school through college. So the support is not just uh, in terms of fees for their schools and colleges, but also actively supporting them with their parents. There's, there's also this expectation that the children, once they grow up a little bit, they would start working and contribute financially to the running of the household. So we also pay a small stipend, which equals the monies that they would get from a factory that they would otherwise have to work in, so that they are not pushed to uh, having to work immediately. Uh, so we get them everything like books, we do their travel expenses from school to college, but we also make sure that they have comfortable shoes and clothing so that they are not ostracized for the way they appear um, when they go to college because coming from a slum, they are also already having to fight many different um, class-based uh, issues. When And the idea has always been that they would go to a big university in Bombay so that they are able to explore the city and also be able to accept the gifts that the city brings to you because a lot of times they live in Dharavi and their entire life is kind of like in this cocoon, um, in this environment where they go to work there and the only time they leave is when they go back to their villages when there is some um, family-related issues that they might have to attend to. So working with Savitri My Fellowship, and then every year we have a monsoon school where we invite women to hold classes. And it is an intimate space where you are one of the instructors for this monsoon school, which we are very grateful for. Uh, this year, the monsoon school was on writing, and we invited aspiring writers to come and uh, be in uh, a close session with someone who's had a lot of experience in writing. And then we have many different exhibitions, but as a part of the library, we also have a radio called Sister Radio, which focuses on the voices of indigenous women. And we have a press called Sister Press, where we print and publish bi-monthly newspapers and monthly zines. The zines focus on writers from South Asia, that women writers from South Asia who wrote in South Asian languages. And um, the press is focused on news around women. So we try to break down policy changes as well as current news, women's health. And uh, it has a centerfold poster that celebrates the life and works of an indigenous or a Dalit woman. And um, we have uh, an open access that where we invite women to come and print together. We teach them how to make prints. Uh, use print printmaking as a technique. We have reading circles where we sit together and read books. We have a book club called Reading Women Book Club. 
and uh, we have this thing called feminist free school where we invite women from all walks of life to come and talk about their work where we are able to learn about their practice and these are women who may or may not have a professional degree so we have had women from the streets who sell flowers we've had women who sell fishes but at the same time we've also had writers and artists um so it's women from different walks of life i might be forgetting something but there's so much <laughs> it is an incredible program and when i participated in the the writing workshop for the monsoon school i saw for myself how important and inspiring it is for they were an incredible group of young women and ambitious young writers who asked fantastically smart questions um so they were really impressive so i saw how important it is to them and you have clearly used design conceptually to to develop this amazing range of services from sister library but also physically in its sort of old-fashioned role design has also played an important part because it doesn't look like any library i've ever been into so could you tell us about that so the library is hot pink in color i have been using this color in my practice a lot because it's a color that really demands attention and uh, it's because of the history of women's voices being submerged in this crowd of voices and um just the needs like the mountains of needs that we have we find ourselves surrounded by women's needs just tend to take a back seat and i felt like it is really important that the space in itself uh is something that really stands out and it demands attention and i did not want it to be <laughs> a very like whitewashed space at all i wanted it to be like really something that is strong and very strong visually um it is uh it's also very surreal in the sense that it feels like when you step inside because you're surrounded by works of women in such a large quantity and you don't really have access to these works otherwise if you're not a university student <laughs> so it feels like it is a space that is uh not real and uh thankfully now we've got a space where we when we step inside the library we can see trees outside so you're in a pink box with books and a printer and then you look outside and then you see these green lush trees so it really feels like you're in a dream dream space <laughs> um yeah it um it was important really for me to have this space that looks different but also feels different so because we don't have these white walls we don't have high ceilings it is built in a sort of a basement kind of a space of a building so it's not an intimidating neighborhood at all and anyone can walk in and spend time in the library there are no guards we don't have any security cameras and everything i think about the library i thought about it like it's not like we haven't had offers from like big business families for us to put their name in the library so that there is ownership of some kind that is attributed to them but uh, it always felt like the library has to run with the monies from the community so that we would not have the pressure to uh, be co-opted by something that is much larger and that has its own agendas but also it feels 
like in its design of the way the ownership is it is community owned it feels like a very important space in itself because we are surrounded by things that are privately owned so if we have the first feminist library in south asia and the fact that it is community owned the monies come from everyone for it to run and function i feel like that is very satisfying for me <laughs> personally and uh, yeah i think that's an important aspect of its design too and you also run the Daravi Art Room. What, what impact has that had on the women and children who participate in it? So Daravi Art Room is an artist-run centre which is in the heart of Daravi. And uh, it's me and Himanshu who has been consistently running it now. And I think now, because we've been there for such a long time, it has almost become... Um, it has almost become like a home, like the community is almost my family because they take care of me and then they open the space, they run the space, the kids know how to design it. It keeps changing, the space keeps changing all the time. But in a space, in a place like Dharavi where there are hundreds and thousands of people pouring in every day, I would say not even every day, every few hours, it is a space where you know for sure as someone who is the most vulnerable in the society, if you're a woman or a child, you know for sure that there is the space there where I can go and nobody's going to bully me or abuse me in any way. And uh, I think spaces like these are very important. And it's not because the space is safer, not because there is surveillance or policing. It's because the space has just become a space where there is love and there's community and um, and I think we've been able to mold the space or the community has been able to mold the space according to their needs so usually the space is a space for people to make art and uh, design and uh, read and uh, experience leisure but uh, during covid the space was turned into a food distribution center where uh, mothers who were uh, either working for fast fashion industry or uh, food industries or working as maids and servants in other people's houses were immediately laid off and they did not have work so we asked them if they would like to cook for the children because the children were not getting their midday meals because the schools were closed and they were a little insecure about um, going to the government for aid because their ID cards then would have to be recorded and a lot of them are um, <laughs> not comfortable with that because of the Dharavi redevelopment plan which is in the works. So then uh, the mothers cooked for the children and then the space became a space where there was food, there was storage of food where we got a bunch of um, fruit juices and chocolates and things that kids like to eat but also grains and uh, some gas cylinders so that the food could be eaten and distributed and we could fight I think like a small percentage of starvation that the kids would otherwise experience. I think impact wise it's very hard for me to measure but I can say that it's a space where kids feel happy and women feel happy and it's a space where boys who are otherwise pushed to becoming hyper-masculine uh, because they have to exist in a place like Dharavi, 
can come and just be children. They are, there's no pressure for them to uh, become a man. And where girls can also just be children, where there is no pressure for them to constantly look over their shoulders to make sure they are safe. And I think to have an environment like that really helps uh, shape you as a person, especially when you're a child. It sounds like exactly the kind of space that you probably needed when you first went to, to Daravi. And as you, you've alluded to the Daravi redevelopment programme, the area is clearly changing rapidly and poised for more radical change. What new pressures is that going to put on Sister Library and Daravi Artrum? And what needs to happen to enable you and your collaborators to make those projects sustainable in the future? Yeah, it, uh, this Daravi redevelopment plan really scares me because Bombay has a history of uh, redevelopment projects uh, that are pitched and sanctioned, followed by riots and the riots are mostly religious riots and there's a lot of death because there has to be clearance and it is um, it looks very dirty when it happens there's a lot of loss of life but then houses are also demolished there is no regard to where the people will be moved to um, the temporary settlements that are given to people are just horrid with no windows they're just like plain metal boxes where you are asked to live and um, and we've seen this i have worked with so many communities who have had to live in these kind of um, temporary settlements they call transit camps uh, because of their houses being demolished a lot of children that i know have lost their memories because of the shock that they undergo so already there's been like some changes happening. There's a metro line passing through Dharavi and there's been demolitions that have happened. A few of our children had to move to the outskirts of Bombay, which becomes difficult because not only are they moving their houses, but not only are the children moving their school to outskirts of Bombay, the women in the families work as maids and servants and cooks and cleaners in the houses that are in Bandra or in uh, Sion or like in the richer neighborhoods around Dharavi. So they will have to also come commute every single day from really far. And when I say far, it's far because Bombay is a very big city. So it takes you at least like three hours of commuting in the morning to get to where you are when you are in the outskirts of the city. And then like losing your house and losing your community is always like very drastic and it changes your life forever. And it is a large population of people because we are talking about Dharavi, like you said, it's one of the densely, densest places in the planet. And we're talking about a very large number of people who are put under this threat. Out of this entire community, there is only a fraction of community that has been promised houses within Dharavi. Um, because uh, it's like the whole plan of redevelopment and how it has been done in Bombay is just so shocking to me because they have these like huge high-rise buildings, residential houses for people who can afford to live in the middle of the city because Dharavi is the heart of Bombay. It's literally in the center of the city. And then they build these houses for people who want to live in palatial houses in the heart of the city and then they build like shopping complexes, museums, what have you, 
to make the lives of these people comfortable and then they still need workers in their houses which is why they keep a pocket of people still there in these things called slum rehabilitation buildings so you're taking a population that is very horizontal their lives are horizontal because their houses are tiny but then they have like an industry outside of their houses be it making poppers or be it making achars or be it making things for the fashion industry so you are trying to put contain all of that in a vertical setup which is like a building with the lift that does not work with water that does not reach to the higher levels and then you expect people to be happy in that kind of a state where you are not being able to carry on the industrial work that you would otherwise do or and nor can you see everyone when you are in a horizontal space you have your chickens running around you have your cats and your dogs your pets all that is gone so not only are you taking away people's houses but you're also taking away their livelihoods and a way of life that they are accustomed to and then all of this then impacts women and children in the community because they are the most vulnerable ones and it also is a way to demasculinate men who are already like they already feel the pressures of being very working class and then also migrants who are often trying to escape the ostracization in their villages so when i think about all of these things that is definitely going down it's like uh, it's like the sword hanging above our heads i think the only uh, escape from this is to make sure that our kids are getting educated they are still being able to go to the best of the universities that bombay has which we are trying to do slowly so that even if they have a redevelopment their houses are demolished they can still find their foothold in the city and not have to go to the outskirts of the city and they can be sustained in some way they can uh, support their families they will be able to look at the paper and read the paper that is handed on to them by the builders they'll be able to make sense of it and uh, we don't know if like dharavi is coming down like the entire place is coming down so we don't really see a future for the art room to still be in dharavi but dharavi art room is not just a physical space now we are so many years of like this love and community that we share so we definitely going to be involved with what is whatever is happening every day however it is unfolding now well, it's clearly potentially a, a deeply grave an alarming situation and it's great that you're already planning ahead and thinking of ways in which you can respond to to ameliorate it and one way in which you have responded to political change throughout your working life is um through zines by designing and distributing zines as part of your practice and also by setting up Bombay Underground which is a very important part of Mumbai's underground publishing scene can you talk to us about that work Bombay Underground we have been actively participating with the movements the social movements that happen on ground because oftentimes especially if it is like indigenous movements they can't they are not heard about in the city because there is a lot of surveillance but also they get on the press does not want to write about it and but there is like a lot of work that goes on especially amongst indigenous communities a lot of resistance so 
our first like primary work has been making publications posters for organizations on ground that don't really have like a visual culture but they have been doing a lot of work it helps to get their message across because a sticker is so much more i think effective and impactful than handing someone like a whole uh, white paper about a movement that is one work but then like we also are a collective of artists again like imanshu and i we run we are mostly like uh, i would say the the center and then like we're surrounded by a group of artists who also like constantly come and work towards publishing our main uh, area of work i think is printmaking so we make a lot of prints that are posters zines and smaller publications handouts flyers and distributed but we also make street performances because it's also about activating the city and involving people everyday people who are too busy because the city demands that you are constantly in motion or you you cannot survive you get thrown out of the city so involving people about really thinking about what is happening in the city and how it is demanded from you that you have a sense of apathy or you cannot survive in the city so like really thinking that is this the way we are supposed to be as people from the city um so as a part of that we also started making zines and uh zines because i think i gravitated towards zines making because it has a very activist history and i did not go to an art school so i don't have any formal training like everything that i know i've learned from the artists that i'm surrounded by and people that i'm surrounded by and and i think in this i also include like all the artists that <laughs> i surrounded myself with like all the works the magnificent works and this included zines and i had to make zines because it just was a medium where there is no one who edits out things that they don't find um tasteful it can be anything it can take any form and it takes a uh, very little money to make it and uh, and then you have the control to distribute the way you would want it to be distributed so we usually sell zines outside on streets and it is like very nominally priced it's like 50 rupees so that everyone can have a piece of work and read and really think about different perspectives that may not exist in the mainstream discourses in the news and then like slowly i think 7 years back <laughs> we just had the bombazine fest the seventh bombazine fest so 7 years back when there was enough interest and people had started to be like so every time people would see us on the street they would ask hey do you have anything new like when they would pass us on their way to the railway station and then we'd be like yeah new stuff and then they'd come and take and then so there was this growing interest and we thought oh this is the perfect time for us to start a zine fest and then we started we did the first zine bombay zine fest and that was apparently the first bombay first zine fest in south asia and uh, since then like the first bombay zine fest we did not have any tablers so there weren't any other zine makers from the second bombay zine fest we started holding a lot of workshops and teaching people how to make zines and how impactful it is not just personally but also for the people who read it 
and so we had a bunch of zine makers for the second Bombay Zine Fest and this time around we had 30 tablers but we also had around 100 submissions from across India which is like a really big number and it is only growing. We've also inspired many other zine festivals and comic book festivals which are also smaller festivals um, but like, like everything that I do this is also very independent. We don't have um any embassy funding or any international organization funding the idea has always been to keep it independent keep it small and uh, just so that it has its originality and it's not lost in all the sponsorships um well one thing that strikes me when you talk about your work is the joy that you take in it and that you enable and empower others to to feel from it. Has that always been the case? I mean, you've had a very difficult life in many respects, also an extraordinary one. And many of the people you're helping are in deeply precarious circumstances. So what is the role of joy in it all? I was not always very joyful. I lived in a lot of pain and uh, there were many times that I thought it would not be like, you know, and I think it is a very common um, part of our lives, like you reach a certain age and like, I never thought I would live beyond, beyond 20 years, like I had planned my life to end when I get to 20 because it was so dark. And oftentimes I talk to a lot of children like me and even they cannot envision a future beyond 20. So we live like, uh, especially for indigenous peoples, indigenous young peoples, we, we have like, not just the trauma because of the ongoing trauma, like we don't have PTSD, like we have ongoing trauma because of the militarization and the violence, but we also have like inherited trauma from our parents and from our grandparents and, uh, it's really hard. So there was no, never that space where I could uh, think beyond what I was surrounded by. But um, I think things started changing when I survived everything, I guess. <laughs> like now I'm in that space where I feel like, what's the worst that can happen? Because everything has happened already, you know? Like there isn't anything worse that is left. Um, so... Now I feel like, yeah, I survived everything. And I also realized that it is very, very important to be joyful because I see joy as resistance because we are people that were not allowed to be joyful. We are not allowed dreams. We were not allowed a life. We were just allowed slavery. And for us to be joyful is already resistance. And that has given me a lot of and so you'll often find me smiling for nothing and <laughs> just laughing loudly but uh, it's all really needed I feel like our laughter has healing properties and when we laugh together it really just meant something within us as people who have gone through so much so I think it it, it has become like I think when I started choosing joy it was a political act but now it has become more of a habit like i'm just happy <laughs> constantly well 
long may you smile broadly and 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 laugh loudly and i i'd be interested in talking about that in the broader context of south asia which has a proud and and very rich history of social and humanitarian design and in using um, those fields as part of the resistance. So you could look at the current work of humanitarian architects like Yasmin Lari in Pakistan and Rina Tabasam in Bangladesh, who are also working with very vulnerable communities in their countries. Do you feel part of that tradition? I mean, it's an honor to be have my name in the same sentence as theirs because they're doing phenomenal work. Um, I don't know if I fall within that tradition because I come from a space of vulnerability. I'm not someone who is distant and doing this work. So I think although there might be some commonalities between our practices, but I also feel like my practice is certainly different because I understand because of my experiences and the things that I've gone through and not through looking at uh, things and understanding as an outsider. So I think it might be a little different, but yeah, definitely appreciative of amazing women, both of them uh, doing amazing work, despite everything that happens in South Asia. So yeah, it's really an honor that you really even thought of me to put, thought of my name to put in the same sentence in this question when i read it i was just like oh my gosh like they are such amazing phenomenal women i really love their work so thank you alice oh well they are indeed and we've been very fortunate in that to interview both of them on design emergency and learn more about their work through that and when you were talking about the, the current problems that India, Mumbai and Dharavi in particular face, it struck me that these are constants um, all over the world for rapidly developing metropolitan areas. Are there any other practices that have inspired you or given you hope or a sense of solidarity through their work in responding to similar problems? Yes, I think that the problem is because of greed, that everybody wants to move to the cities and uh, they, the pressure on developing the underdeveloped is immense. And uh, so I, I'm really inspired by all the Sami activists who are fighting these uh, developmental um, battles battles against development also the indigenous activists and artists who are fighting against creation of again um these telescope in mauna kia and and also the maoris who are fighting against developmental houses building in ihumato in uh, tamaki uh, makoro in uh, new zealand so i'm really inspired by all this like activism that goes on the resistance that's happening but um, India is a very different world, like very different uh, space altogether because of its social realities and uh, how uh, resistance is, um, you know, just met with the kind of forces that we have to uh, face uh, when we resist. 
So I don't know what would be the answer, but it's also scary. It's getting more and more scarier because of the race that India is trying to fight to become one of the uh, powers of the world, one of the superpowers of the world after having been colonized for so long. So in this race, it's always the people who are losing. It does not matter uh, if the country is winning, the people in the race are still losing. So I think it's time for us to like look back. I always like... Uh, in my thinking, like in my decolonial thinking, in my indigenizing practice, I always tend to look back and see how did our elders survive everything for thousands and thousands of years, for millennia, without having to be greedy, and how did they sustain everyone? So I think we have to look back at those practices and think about um, human sustenance and not about like amassing wealth and power. And maybe like through human sustenance, we might even become richer people and happier people. But uh, I don't I really don't think this is the way to go about it. And there has to be like alternate ways of uh, governance, alternate ways of developmental practices and what development even means and whose development are we talking about and uh, lots of things. But yeah, I think like very inspired by all these very political works around design philosophy, but also around art making, uh, specifically by indigenous communities all across the world. Well, and there's more and more research into those ancient indigenous practices and how they can be applied now with very positive uh, effect. So to end on a personal perspective, how do you want to develop your own work in in the future? Uh, so last year, I think I started making my work. Uh, uh, my works are very direct most of the times and very political. And then I realized that because I have lived all of my life as a life of resistance, and every day that I step out of the house, it is, uh, it is just like resistance, like you know. So I allowed myself a space of softness last year and I started making works that are soft and you have some of the care cards that I gave you I made this thing called care cards for emergencies and everyday use so from last year on I'm making works that are more soft and I'm allowing myself that softness because I deserve it everyone deserves softness So I'm sharing like ceremonial practices that anyone could perform so that you start feeling in community with water, with wind, with soil. So I think I'll be doing more ceremonial work that can be done by anyone and everyone and anywhere because we are all indigenous to some place. And yeah, and I think a lot of our problems will be solved if we start feeling that connection that we have as people to each other but also to all the nature that we are surrounded by as nature ourselves too. So that is the direction I think my work is going to go towards this year too. I I really liked when I started making soft soft work that uh, spoke to everyone and I want to make more of those works. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Aki, thank you very much for sharing your passion, your dedication, your adventures, and of course, your joy 
with us. And thank you all for listening. You can find images of the projects that Aki has described on our Instagram feed at design.emergency. And we look forward to welcoming you back to Design Emergency very soon, when we'll be talking to another global design leader who, like the remarkable Aki Tami, is forging positive change. Goodbye.